Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the Bike Radar Meets podcast series. This is where we, as you might imagine, meet interesting and influential people from the bicycle industry. In this episode, I spoke to Jeff Steber, who is the founder, owner, CEO of Intense Cycles. So Intense are a hugely influential mountain bike brand, which have been going for decades now. So it's a really interesting chance to chat with the guy behind it. I'd just like to apologize in advance. This was the first time I'd used a dictaphone and a microphone outside, uh, and there's quite a lot of wind and car noise. So please cut me a bit of slack uh, because it was my first go. Um, But yeah, hopefully it hasn't ruined the audio too much. So with uh, Jeff Stever, who is obviously the founder, designer, head honcho um, at Intense Cycles. Yeah, glad to be here talking with you, Tom. Cool. So we've just been at the launch of the Primer, which is um, your new trail bike. Uh, and maybe we'll just quickly talk about the Primer while, while we're here. Um, you've got rid of effectively your trail bike range. So you've dropped a number of bikes, but you're offering the Primer uh, in three different flavors. Can you talk us through sort of the process of, of how you've sort of narrowed the range, made it simpler, that sort of thing is? Yeah, the idea was to um, evolve the product line, make it a lot easier for the customer um, to make choices. Um, and so, you know, the Primer has been a really popular trail bike segment of ours, you know, model within the brand. And so it seemed like the natural pick to become our dedicated trail bike. So within the trail segment, it's the primer now. Um, We just happen to then have three different variations on the primer. So you have the different wheel sizes. Um, The S model, which stands for staggered, or we like to call it 279, really evolved um, probably more from um, the Taser e-bike that we developed and launched recently. Um, where that wheel configuration works so well with the, um, you know, with the e-bike that um, we started trying it on um, pedal bikes also and actually found that it, there's some, you know, there's some real truth to that setup that it's worth, um, was worth looking into. And the more people that threw a leg over it and tried it really thought it was valid. So we actually added it in there. And so it, it kind of uh, maybe ends up being one of the first production um, trail, you know, um, bikes available in this season. So, yeah, it seems that, you know, I was just seeing with, with, 
with the likes of the Taser, the, the 2.8 on the back, the 650B, and then a 29-foot wheel just seem to be popular in, in the e-bikes. It's been noticeable this year, 2019, in the downhill world as well. But as I said, the Prime Res is, from what I can tell, that the first production bike with a, a regular size front wheel and, and a plus on the back. What, what for you, were, were the biggest advantages of that day? Um, I think, um, you know, I hear the mixed wheel size bikes, you know, the mullet getting tossed around quite a bit, mm -hmm. which um, kind of business up front and party in the back, you know, kind of mentality. And I think that kind of does, in some ways, sum it up. Um, so, you know, uh, you get the, the rollover, you know, uh, that a 29 wheel gives you the contact patch, that sort of thing. So the handling. Um, and the traction and a little more nimble and the wheel under you a little more with this 275 in the back. Um, so it's, it's kind of that middle ground that's the best of both where some people are torn. You know, honestly, now you have another choice. <laughs> it's right in the middle, I guess, but it works. What are the challenges of designing around a mixed wheel size bike? Um, no, no challenges um, these days so much, I don't think, um, other than making sure you have ample tire clearance and stuff so that people can run a variety of tire sizes back there. Um, you know, as a frame designer, um, the big challenges for me, honestly, used to be front derailers. When those went away, it opened up so much like space for new architecture and yeah, just cleaning up the whole bike and the design. Being able to design suspension kinematics around one chain ring instead of three. So, I mean, I wanted to move on to sort of a little bit about your um, your past and sort of and, and how sort of the intense brand has developed over time. One of the questions I did want to ask was, what do you think have been the most influential things to have changed in mountain bike? both in terms of design um, and componentry over the past, what was it, 30-something years? Yeah, 30, 35 years. Um, well, the one I was just mentioning for me seemed to have made a big impact because it, it freed up a lot of, uh, for suspension design in particular, getting rid of front derailleur. So the one-by drivetrains um, was, a, I think, um, a real functional, big functional jump. Um, you know, also, the the move from alloy frames being in all the t you know the the top end material of choice to carbon um, that was a bit of a rough one for me because we had intensively invested years into making our own high end aluminum um, carbon frames and so you know to it was kind of a evolve or die situation where we did have to change as much as people wanted to see the alloy stuff we weren't competitive price-wise anymore and you know we were uh, considered ourselves a performance I am brand so we had to evolve to carbon so kind of for me it was a, a tough transition but um, I'm glad I did it or I probably would honestly at this point be kind of back in my garage making one-off alloy frames, you know? Uh, but you're still doing that, from what I understand. In the development of, of the new models, you are still there, you know, welding aluminium frames together just to try things out. Is that, is that right? All these beautiful carbon bikes that we love to ride, they all start out as aluminum prototypes, test mules, at least um, within our um, R&D process. So, um, you know, before we spend a lot of money on opening tooling, 
to produce a carbon bike, there's you know a whole series of alloy prototypes to vet out kinematics, geometry, you know, uh, fit and form and function kind of factors um, come into play. So that by the time we put the money on the table and make the commitment, all that's been worked out. And then there's also the a process when you get into the carbon to get the layout proper and all mm -hmm. this sort of thing. But it does start with an alloy frame. And I still, you know, um, our R&D shop um, is just as much of a, an alloy fab shop than anything because we, you know, I still personally make all the um, alloy prototypes, um, you know, um, cut the tubes and tack and we weld them up and, and, you know, we can make changes really quick um, and evolve a design in a relatively small um, time space. Um, sometimes we get a bike a design right where we're all comfortable with, with two test mules and sometimes it takes eight. Okay. You know? uh, a number of times when I've been to development labs of, of various bike companies, there's, there's a whole host of uh, computer-aided design going in and, you know, a lot of digital stuff before, you know, and I guess it tends to be often with with the carbon bikes because if they're going straight into carbon prototypes that sort of thing you've been designing bikes for 35 whatever how many however many years how, are you still doing it in the same way you did back in those days or have you how much sort of all this new tech are you sort of bringing into the way you guys are building bikes you're asking all the right questions because that's actually pretty interesting um to me because uh, i'm a little bit uh what i call analog digital so i'm still a little old school but obviously, as we work in the carbon, we have to em employ a lot more um, computer design technology. Um, but at the same time, from day one, when I started making alloy frames, I was, wasn't making conventional, like, three-round tubes welded together. You know, I was already employing CNC machine parts, and this is back in 1990, kind of turn of the century. Um, so right away the intense frames kind of stood out as being a little different um, using sealed cartridge bearings for pivots and and honestly I went straight into making full suspension frames and really didn't muddle around with hardtails at the time at all um, so you know that process um, you know, well it has evolved over the years it still is a lot of hands-on um, you know we use initially like the concept okay what's this bike going to be is it a upgrade from a current model and what do we want to change and achieve so you know we kind of do a little committee process and we even employ a lot of our um, key international um, you know like partners and um, we use a lot of input from our athletes um, and so it starts with that discussion and then, you know, there's a geometry chart created, that sort of thing. Um, we'll lay out some skeletons in SolidWorks or whatever, um, start playing with kinematics to achieve those goals. And then there's a point pretty early on where uh, I'll basically print out a one-to-one -one blueprint and then I'll make a, a, a alloy prototype from that. And then how that rides dictates where we go next, whether it's an we want to tweak some things and do some comparisons or, um, you know, it's a small or a major change that can actually happen pretty quickly. But it's very hands on at that point when you get into the OK, that's buttoned down. 
And now, um, somewhere along the time, that timeline, we crossed over and I started working on the ID for a carbon frame. And probably even a little bit of the 3D modeling has started at that point. Um, and w once we kind of sign off on the prototypes, then we can go full into it. And that's when it pretty much shifts from any analog, what I'm calling like the alloy part of it, to full-on 3D modeling and that sort of thing and into making tooling and, and eventually laying up a carbon frame. Okay, so w once you've built this um, aluminium prototype and you get to ride it, you're sort of at that point you're sussing out the suspension, how that sort of feels. Are there any, is it, do you often get sort of surprises when you get the first carbon ones through in terms of differences in feel or is it generally once you've, you know, you've got an aluminium tube and you know how to transpose that straight into carbon or? Well, it would be a little different if we were actually um, from day one planning to also produce the bike in alloy because then we probably would design it, be a little more critical on the feel of what the alloy bike feels like from a point of like, um, you know, vibration, transmission, that sort of thing, flex patterns, that sort of thing. Um, and honestly, we're not really using the alloy test mules to decipher that so much. They always end up being a lot stiffer as alloy bikes kind of tend to be if they're overbuilt. Um, and so um, normally the first carbon prototypes, and we're, we're starting with pretty proven initial layup patterns that, you know, followed suit before. Um, so the bikes usually feel a lot more lively in carbon generally and have a lot more snap to them, that sort of thing. The aluminum mules sometimes have a little more of a dead feel to them than the carbon bikes for sure. Okay. Before we, last year we saw the introduction of the Taser, which is the e-bike. And that was perhaps a bit of a surprise to us from, uh, a rel you know, like a boutique US brand bringing out an e-bike wasn't something we sort of expected. Like, how long had you been playing with the idea and, and what was sort of the impetus for doing that? Another great question. Um, <laughs> the, I, I'd i been intrigued with e-bikes and, you know, coming over uh, to Europe quite often and, um, you know, starting some maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, starting to see uh, at Eurobike show and quite a, you know, like, hey, Europe is really biting into this. And um, it's very interesting to me. And at the same time, um, kind of following global trends for the, kind of the electrification of vehicles in general, and specifically the electrification of two wheels, whether it's bicycles, and, you know, or motorcycles or, you know. So it was very interesting to me personally. And as, you know, I'm um, as I'm getting up in my years, I was just looking, for, always looking for something new and fun. And um, having been a motorcycle, motocross enthusiast for years, it it was seemed like a new opportunity for some new adventures to me. This kind of crossover a little bit. Um, and so, even though it maybe in the beginning it wasn't the f philosophy of the whole company, um, I. It embraced it because I felt like it was a big part of the future and intense you know we have a lot of connections with the motor world and a lot of motor riders and that cross train on intense bikes and ambassadors that are motocross guys and we're in Southern California right in the heart of like you know a lot of the top moto guys you know and and, and I saw a lot of this that group of people really embracing e-bikes too and um, so 
you know, early on, I started um, doing some benchmarking with existing product, and you know, I'm going, ah, you know, this geometry's not right, this or that. So obviously, I had to build one myself and put the intense design philosophy on it. And as soon as I did that, it really opened up. Okay, now I have a e-bike that I really enjoy and want to ride. It kind of is, and and saw the possibilities. And you know, all of a sudden, I was having a lot of fun in a different way on a bike. Um, and accessing new areas and riding, riding a little differently, and, and, and maybe even more. And so I really enjoyed that part of it. And it probably took, on the Taser project, I would say it was almost like my lone project. I felt a little lonely within the company for a little while, maybe a year and a half. And I um, had made two alloy prototypes, and I couldn't get the other. Our, we have some pretty core riders in Intense, and couldn't get them to throw a leg over it and eventually they started hearing some good feedback from like their moto buddies and this and sort of thing and um you know i got some of these guys out on would take them out on a ride and uh, literally within like half a mile i'm looking back at them and there's just a big smile and it's like it turned the switch completely the other direction and pretty soon i couldn't keep the you know the prototypes (laughs) they weren't in my garage anymore they were in everyone else's and um, it was wide open then. So, um, and we do see the, the future in it and the possibilities. And um, just myself as a personal project in my home shop, I'm actually building an, an electric street tracker, like a full high powered, like for commuting. Um, and, you know, it actually looks pretty cool and it's super fast. So, um, kind of excited about that. But it's, it's really, me learning about um, what I was talking about earlier, that electrification of two wheels and where it can go. Um, and it, it is a whole different um, platform to the bicycle, you know, so. Brilliant. Yeah. Moving sort of from the, 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 the sharp end of where we are now with, with, with the modern bikes, back to what was, I guess, one of the most influential gravity bikes to have ever really been made, the M1. You know, this was a bike that was rebadged with many different bicycle brands because it was at the time the absolute leading downhill bike. How how did that all come about and what can you tell us about that bike? Well, going back again um, to day one and even the first first mountain bikes I decided to build were not conventional in construction and um, pretty quickly you know, people started adapting, even though the first bike, which was called the Spider that I made, and it had three inches of suspension travel, um, was really designed as a, it was a trail bike and for cross-country riding, which was the popular style of riding them. But full suspension bikes in the early, we're talking like 1990, early 90s, um, had kind of gotten a bad name because some of the big guys had gone in and made elastomer suspension bikes that really weren't designed very well. Um, and, you know, people, you, you heard the word pogo used a lot and, and power tapping, you know. Um, so the first design I had was actually pretty efficient being a four bar FSR mm-hmm. style, you would call it now. Um, so it actually did a good job of from the pedaling and, and the active suspension side already. Um, so a lot of people adapted it that, you know, then it was like, oh, you know, it's, it's not true mountain. You know, it's like hardtails versus 
um, whole suspension bikes. But it did establish Intense from day one as a kind of a leader in full suspension designs. And then, um, you know, we're talking 1993, 92, you know, downhill races were racing on hardtails mm. with maybe a suspension fork with, you know, two inches travel, inch and a half, two inches. If it was warm. Yeah, dry. right. And elastomer, maybe, uh, you know, oil dampened. Um, but, uh, you know, solid hardtail rears. Um, and so right away they adapted. I had a lot of guys coming me and right racing the spider. And uh, right away I realized then, Hey, we need more travel and we need to evolve this thing for downhill. Um, because they're the guys that adapted to the full suspension first. And so, um, pretty early on in 1993, 94, um, I started playing along around with a little longer travel. And, and honestly, air shocks were the thing back then, and, and they weren't the air shocks we know today. The air shocks had a lot of stiction, that sort of thing. And so from, you know, motocross and tinkering with motorcycles for years, I realized I had to work a linkage into the system and a coil shock somehow to get the travel and the compliance and the, the kinematics that I was looking for for a real downhill bike. And around that same time, I got involved with a lot of um, motocross guys that were also in the bike, riding mountain bikes. Um, Mike Metzger, Sean Palmer, Randy Lawrence. And you know, Paul, the Palmer thing really stuck because he really, he kind of wanted something, was looking for something different to do. And he liked riding mountain bikes. And um, so pretty early on, he was drawn to my, the M1, which in configuration, you know, was already kind of unique and used bearings in CNC machine parts and things. <laughs> And, um, you know, they started doing local races and doing really good. And it's like, you know, right away, the first thing I'm hearing is that we got to get a coil shock on this and we got to get a coil shock. And so, so that was the first challenge because no one was really making one. And early on, I went to some um, shock uh, manufacturers that were making shocks for off-road trucks and this mm -hmm. sort of thing. And we fashioned, they made me a custom shock and um, eventually caught the eye of... Uh, uh, Fox and it was John Marking at the time who was kind of heading up the the bicycling division there also and um, One of the first races, you know uh, was a Norba race at Big Bear and Sean ended up winning But that same race we were delivered the first coil shock Which was the vanilla coil as a prototype and we had the bike all ready to go and he raced it and it made a, a huge difference at the time um, so and then at the same time Sean Palmer kind of hit the scene and mm -hmm. so there was a, a kind of a right timing the right rider a really you know aggressive outspoken gregarious guy it had a history you know in another sport um, of winning and being a champion uh, at, 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 at all costs uh, also now in the mountain biking and is he is he really gonna prove out to be the same thing and this really unique kind of different bike um, it even looked different than everything out there so um, it kind of came together as kind of a magical combination, I think, and put a lot of um, attention on Intense. So it was a big help. And in our heritage, you know, the, the Palmer years are very important, and a lot of people still relate to that. And a lot of people don't know about it either, but it, we do have that rich heritage. Um, I'm starting to ramble here a little bit, I know, but um, one other interesting thing at the time that actually 
led to the something that was a big part of the early years of the intense bike designs was I wanted to achieve a different type of construction to the bike uh, and so uh, I was especially for the downhill bike and so I went to some of the the at the time the top two manufacturers that were doing like tube budding and things and um, I said hey can you do this for me with um, shaping tubes and mm -hmm. things and they're going how many bikes a year do you make you know you're just a little guy in a garage or whatever eh, I don't think we can do that for you so it actually forced me to look outside the box yeah. and w find another a technique to achieve these shapes and and um, I kind of rediscovered monocoque construction from, you know, working in the aircraft industry and, and on cars. And, you know, it's been around in, in racing for years mm. in different forms. Um, so, um, and I even was able to push it a little further then by shaping these tube, my own tube shapes by using formed halves of metal and uh -huh. welding them together. And hence, right away, we had something that didn't look like your conventional totally bicycle. Unique. And then employed that into making our own tube shapes and whether it was a top shoot tube integrated with a seat master thing. So you look at the early years of intense designs and they all incorporate uh, these monocot hydroform tubes that we made, our, made ourselves. And honestly, the first prototypes, I actually cut the molds out of um, hardwood, shaped them, a left and a right, right half and hammered the zero temper aluminum over kind of old school like old um you know like body um and car builders used yeah, to do yeah. with body panels like on race yeah. coachworks yeah um using sandbags and and uh, rubber mallets and things like that wow. so yeah that's where it started later got presses and did it to where you could duplicate something in a pr production style yeah. um, and so i mean that m1 you know then led to other you know the, the downhill line that you guys have had is well it's extensive and, and you've had some massive names riding up to you know talked about there sean palmer who you know if you are into retro mountain bikes or you know back in the day he was one of the biggest names and and now you've still got pretty much the biggest name riding your bikes you've got aaron Grimm. well through yeah the different uh, if you look at it from the decades i'd say there's always been a top whether it was palmer in the 90s or chris kovarik you know, Sabrina Jonier, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a list of names that were actually on intense factory racing um, at, and racing at different levels. And, you know, to some of the current with uh, Jack Moore and Dean Lucas and Charlie Harrison. And now currently even another evolution to where um, we have um, Aaron Gwynn on the program also. Um, and it, I think it really boils, that really boils down to our commitment to racing and kind of making a full circle to also, um, there were some lean years when, you know, a, again, a small bike manufacturer having to make the shift from making alloy bikes to carbon fiber, it's a huge financial outlay. So some of the racing had to go away for a small period yeah. of there. And, you know, I do regret that because we lost a little ground, but now that things have settled down, um, the focus is back on, you know, our heritage and, you know, there's a, a, a statement we throw around as saying that in, racing is our true north and, and that's really the heart and soul of the brand and so we're back to that full commitment again. Back to where it sort of all started. All started, yeah. When we've been talking um, over the past couple of days about how the, 
you know, the primer and the bikes have been designed and built. You've mentioned a number of times that you know the likes of Gwyn have been involved in, in the development process. Um, how easy is it for someone who you know rides on a complete other level to 99.9 reoccurring percent of the population to relate their experiences and their skills to the design of a bike that predominantly is designed for 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 want of a better word a, a punter, someone who's you know can ride a bike but isn't pro. Yeah, um, there is, uh, you, you have to be able to decipher information properly and even the, the guys, the athletes that we work with that are at the tip of the spear, so to say, um, and that are good at doing that, know how to translate that over a little bit. Um, Aaron, for example, is he's proven that with different um, brands he's worked with to help them mold their product. And it's, it's, it may be a little bit different how he rides, what he rides the setup, but it's not going to necessarily work for everyone, to your point. And Aaron does have a very unique riding style, and even now we're working with him and evolving a bike to work with his riding style better. Doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone else. So it is a, the responsibility of us and Tense and the design team to kind of decipher that. And I'm not going to use the word water down because it's not necessarily um, what we're doing, but the traits of the bike might need to be a little different, the setup, tuning of the suspension, that sort of thing for, for the consumer. And, you know, our intense, um, intense riders generally tend to be pretty core guys and, and um, at higher levels of ability but not necessarily the point I think if the bike is designed really well it actually will make anybody whether they're a beginner intermediate ride better and safer and and actually push them to increase their abilities okay so where where do you just sort of I guess it's almost time to wrap it up actually looking at the battery levels on this record and, and you know your, your time but also where do you sort of see mountain biking heading now we've obviously had e-bikes which is a massive growth sort of area within mountain biking um something which you guys have sort of got involved with there's you know there's the likes of mullet bikes there's electronic shifting electronic suspension you know what are you excited about seeing in the next five to ten years of mountain biking and how do you think that's going to relate to intents um it's exciting when there's innovation happening and that's what i like um and innovation that really makes sense and works and usually some of these things we're trying they may not stand the test of time. Um, I think we see in road bikes that uh, for example that uh, the, you know they've been around a long time and the geometry has settled down quite a bit mm. um, and that helps I think it makes it easier then for both the cons consumers and the manufacturers and the brands to to you know, put out good product year after year. Um, but you're going to see that, you know. Um, innovation is always exciting. It has to happen to push the sport forward. At the same time, there is some things that have to settle down. Bikes are not going to continue to get longer and longer and slacker and slacker. Mm -hmm. There's a point where you go too far and you got to reel it in a little bit. I think we're like right there. Um, until maybe something else comes along that allows that next level of innovation to happen. One of those I mentioned was the one-by drivetrain for me um, has been a huge one that allowed suspension in frame architecture to, to evolve quite a bit. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the innovation of one thing, a drivetrain, led to the ability to innovate in another area on the bicycle. And that's, those are the really exciting ones, and we'll continue to see those come along. Um, the, you know, e-bikes, um, they have their place. They've chiseled in really well. Um, Europe has been seeing the benefits and, and, and even a new market potential and customer base for e-bikes for probably 10 years now. It's relatively new in North America um, and people are, it hasn't, it's, it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, and, and we haven't really uh, tapped into the benefits with it. In North America, bicycles are kind of seen as toys. You know, it's rec the recreational side. Um, in other parts of the world, it's transportation, recreation, fitness. You know, it's a, it, bicycles mean a lot more. And especially e-bikes on a commuter level in countries where bicycle commuting is the norm has raised the bar considerably and opened it up to a lot more people. Uh, my hopes are that that also can happen in North America and, and open up cycling to a bigger group of people and as a means of transportation, not only as a sport or recreation. Uh, I do just have one more, actually a quick question. Um, we've been riding the bikes here in, in South Wales. Um, and the bikes are designed in California. There's been sort of vague little sort of snippets of conversation where we've talked about how there's differing influences between different markets on the, you know, the design, whether it's the spec, the shape. How easy is it to design a bike that's going to be sold around the world? Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, different markets, different regions, countries, um, because of influences like the different riding and type of riding in the area will evolve differently. Uh, trail system and style of riding, and I think that has also evolved into the UK as being kind of a trendsetter in, in geometries and where bikes are going, that sort of thing. So you, you, you can't um, dismiss that. And, so we do have a, a global philosophy to designing our bikes where we incorporate a, a lot of even er, very early on in discussions and along the way where we share prototypes and stuff with our international um, athletes, ambassadors and um, partners. Um, example with the primer early on we needed this bike to be a global hit because it's in the most popular segment, the trail segment. And honestly, one of the early on um, priorities of this bike design was to kind of reel in and reestablish what the true trail bike is. And we kind of say true to the primer is true to the trail because trail bikes were getting pushed more and more into being enduro bikes and enduro bikes getting pushed more and more into being free ride downhill bikes. And we felt like that um, it was one of those we kind of had to reel it in a little bit and reestablish the trail segment. Um, and so some of the, the features, for example, on the primer that actually came directly from working with the guys at Saddleback, our UK distributor, were, uh, for one, the, the adjustable geometry flip ship. And um, when we were, you know, it, it ended up being low and lower, but it was almost like U.S. and U.K., you know, right. kind of a, a thing. And um, it really even opened our eyes. And, you know, it, it's like, oh, we need to have this on all our bikes now. 
for example. Um, also threaded bottom bracket on all the intense bikes coming forward. Uh, a lot of that was generated from um, influence from these guys mm -hmm. and, and a particular market. Um, establishing a new baseline for the geometry on the bikes. Um, so uh, to evolve that to the next level also was part of those communications. So uh, the sizing, for example, reach, uh, bottom bracket heights, things like that. Um, very important. But one of the big things I see, you know, you can do have the frame all dialed in where it can work globally, but it can come down to specs sometimes, what fork you throw on there, you know, that sort of thing. And so um, there might even be a need to to uh, for us to have, uh, you know, for example, there's a glo uh, UK spec mm -hmm. that really matches the riding style of a particular country or area or region, and that yeah. can be done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's great. Well, I think um, we'll let you get back to towards Yate, and then I'll get back towards Bristol. But um, it's been yeah, it's been really good to meet you and really interesting. And thank you for your. Yeah, all your detailed replies to us. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, anytime. Um, thanks for talking to me about this and um, great questions, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.